Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, we have two stories from writer Veronique Greenwood. The first examines the cellular clocks found in almost every cell of the human body. Clues to how these clocks work are coming from the places where they're not. Second, a story from the archives on the insights from information theory that are illuminating nature's large-scale patterns. First, How the Body's Trillions of Clocks Keep Time, by Veronique Greenwood. Carrie Parch was at the tail end of her postdoc when she made the first discovery. The structural biologist was looking at a database of human proteins, noting those that shared a piece with the one she'd been studying. I was just sort of flipping through it thinking, I should know all of these, she recalls. Then this one came up, and it had a different domain architecture than I'd ever seen. She looked further into the protein called PASD1, whose function was unknown. She found that among the few proteins it resembled was one called CLOCK. And that made her sit up straighter, because clock is at the heart of a very large, mysterious process. Not that long ago, as Parch knew, it had become clear that nearly every cell in nearly every tissue in the body keeps time. Every 24 hours, responding to a biochemical bugle call, a handful of proteins assembles in the cell's nucleus. When they bind to each other in the genome, they become a team of unrivaled impact. Under their influence, thousands of genes are transcribed into proteins. The gears of the cell jolt into motion, the tissue comes alive, and on the level of the organism, you open your eyes and feel a little hungry for breakfast. These timekeeping protein complexes, which take some of their cues from a part of the brain that responds to light and darkness, are known as circadian clocks. By some estimates, they regulate the expression of 40% of the genes in the body. Researchers are accumulating evidence that circadian clocks have deep effects on everything from fetal development to disease. Circadian clocks are so ubiquitous and so important to the function of individual cells that biologists whose research doesn't overtly connect to a clock are becoming aware of how it might impact their work. More and more, they are stumbling into clock components, said Charles Weitz, a molecular biologist at Harvard Medical School. It doesn't surprise me. Very few cells lack a clock, but they include biologically compelling examples like embryonic stem cells and cancer. In an effort to discern how the molecular clock works, and why, sometimes it appears to stop. Parch decided to look closer at PASD1. As she and her colleagues recently revealed in a paper in Molecular Cell, PASD1 may be a switch that explains how cells, as different from each other as cancers and sperm precursors, escape the daily rhythms that govern the trillions of other cells in the body. It gives researchers a deep look at the secrets of how the cell ticks. The daily cycling of plants and animals has been a source of fascination for millennia. But it wasn't until about 50 years ago that research into the underlying biochemistry began to take off. Many people traced the field's founding to a meeting at Cold Spring Harbor in the summer of 1960 when researchers brainstormed ideas about what might cause circadian rhythms and devised experiments to test their theories. 
Over the ensuing three decades, researchers identified mutant creatures with abnormal daily cycles. Fruit flies, hamsters, yeasts, and others, and began to uncover the genes required for a normal rhythm. Studying flies whose natural cycle was 19 or 28 hours, or who had no discernible rhythm, led clock pioneers Ronald Kanopka and Seymour Benzer to discover the first family of key clock genes, which they named PER in 1971, and whose levels we now know to rise and fall through the day. Just a year later, researchers reported that a tiny patch of cells in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus was necessary for a 24-hour circadian rhythm in mammals. Yet for many years, it was not clear how pervasive the rhythm's effects were, how deeply it affects everything in the body. In 1988, Uli Schibler, now a professor of molecular biology at the University of Geneva, was studying transcription factors, cellular actors that control the transcription of genes into proteins. One factor in particular, isolated from rats by a Canadian postdoc, seemed to be quite powerful. Together, they published their discovery in the journal Cell. Three months later, however, a student named Jerome Waran took over the project. He soon approached Schibler with some disturbing news. You've got to retract this paper, Schibler recalls Waran saying. It's all fake. It doesn't exist. When Waran performed the isolation, the transcription factor had failed to appear. Schibler, taking his concern seriously, tried the procedure himself. He found the transcription factor easily. After a number of weeks, Waran realized why he couldn't find it himself. He and the postdoc had been performing the isolation at different times of the day. The postdoc, a late riser, usually arrived around 11 a.m., killed the rats, and had the transcription factor in hand by mid-afternoon. But Waran was a farmer's son, Schibler explains. He got up at 5, milked the cows, then came to the lab and killed the rats at 7 a.m., and at that time, this protein's just not there. It's now known that every day this transcription factor's level started almost nothing, making it impossible to detect in the morning, and then rise 300-fold, making it easy for the postdoc to find it in the middle of the day. Schibler notes Riley, as an aside, that in all the years since, no one has ever found a protein that oscillates more wildly. It was just their luck. After this discovery, that the circadian rhythms of the researchers and the circadian rhythms of the rats interacted to make the protein appear to disappear, Schibler turned to studying the daily rhythm and its control of transcription more closely. In 1998, he and colleagues found something unexpected. For years, the cells of the suprachiasmatic nucleus were thought to be alone in having their own clock, controlling all the rhythms in the rest of the body remotely. But Schibler and his colleagues found that the brain wasn't required for a rhythm, nor really was a body. Two kinds of rat cells grown in dishes for generations would rhythmically express genes all on their own. The team's work joined a handful of other studies, suggesting that body clocks were more widely distributed than people had thought. Since then, liver cells, heart cells, lung cells, in the words of Charles White's, just about every tissue we've looked at have turned out to beat their own time, in addition to taking cues from the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Almost every cell in our body has a circadian clock, said Sachin Panda, a clock researcher at the Salk Institute. It helps every cell figure out when to use energy, when to rest, when to repair DNA or to replicate DNA. 
Even hair cells, Panda has found, divide at a particular time each evening. Give cancer patients radiation therapy in the evening rather than in the morning, and they might lose less hair. Researchers have spent the past 15 years untangling the molecular components of these peripheral clocks, as they're known. A big step forward came in 2004 when a team led by Joseph Takahashi, now a professor at the University of Texas Southwestern, developed mice with a glowing PUR protein. When PUR is expressed, cells from these mice are bright. When it's not, they're dark. This advance has enabled studies that track the clock cycling in myriad different tissues and circumstances. Researchers have found that peripheral clocks are based on clock and a protein called BMOL1, as is the clock in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Clasping each other tightly, this pair attaches to the genome and recruits other proteins to start the transcription of nearby genes, including PER. Many of these genes are behind certain physiological rhythms the production of liver enzymes around mealtime, for instance, and the daily rise and fall of blood pressure. But some proteins, including PER, Serve as counterbalances. As PER and its partners gradually build up in the cell over a period of 12 hours, they inhibit the activity of clock in BMAL1. Over the next 12 hours, the counterbalances are slowly degraded, and clock and BMAL1 surge back. John Hoganesh, a chronobiologist at University of Pennsylvania, has found that just before dawn and just before dusk, there are rush hours of gene expression. Perhaps the body preparing for the different demands of surviving the light and in the darkness. It's a tidy, self governing system, and it's tempting to call it ubiquitous. But these studies have also revealed that not everything has a clock. Embryonic stem cells, which can develop into almost any cell type, don't keep time. The testes, almost alone among the organs that have been tested, don't seem to have a clock either. And many cancer cells do not keep a regular rhythm. What could these things have in common? This is where Parch's discovery comes in. One of the first things Parch learned about PASD1 was that it appears in very few tissues, but the ones where it does are intriguing the testes and cancers. When Parch became a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, she and her students began adding PASD1 to cells equipped with glowing PER. They found the cell's usual light was damped down to a faint glimmer, indicating that PASD1 was interfering with the normal operation of the clock. And the more PASD1 they added, the dimmer the cells were. Next, Parch and her students grew cells with glowing PER and got all the cellular clocks synchronized. The glow would get brighter and dimmer like a sine wave with a 24 hour period, would define peaks and troughs for as long as the cells stayed synchronized. Parch then caused some of those cells to produce PASD1. In these cells, the glow became more of a wobble than a wave, the peaks low and the troughs shallow, and very soon it faded away. The cells could not maintain their rhythm. The team is still working to pin down exactly how PASD1 calls a halt to the cell cycling, but one specific part of the protein gives them a hint. This section of PASD1 looks like a part of clock that is absolutely essential for circadian rhythms. But no one to this day knows quite exactly what it does, Part said. She hopes that by understanding how the key piece of PASD1 works, perhaps, for instance, it binds to BMAL1 itself and keeps clock from doing so. They can learn the role of this key piece of clock. 
So far, the work has confirmed Parch's initial hunch that PASD1 would stop the clock. And it suggests that, in the tissues where PASD1 is present, it is part of the reason why the cells don't oscillate. That finding opens the door to deeper questions. With the clock directing so many aspects of cellular behavior, and with mutations in clock genes leading to illness, they've been fingered in cancers and metabolic disorders, why would some types of cells lack clock or have a weakened one? It seems like there's some really interesting and still unexplored connection between some perfect pluripotency, meaning the cellular ability to develop into any cell type, and running a clock, Part said. She recounts experiments from Kazuhiro Yagita's lab in which embryonic mouse stem cells are spurred into development. At first, it's like, come on, come on, no ticking, no ticking, and then at some point in the differentiation of these cells, the clock comes on. When the process is reversed, the clock turns off. The lack of a clock in stem cells may be because the precise genes controlled by the clock vary so much from tissue to tissue, Part speculates. Work from Charles White's lab has shown that liver and heart tissues share only 8-10% to of genes that oscillate daily, for instance. Stem cells have to be everything and nothing at once, Part said. Maybe, in a cell that doesn't know what it is yet, it's not ideal to have a clock. It's a notion that could encompass the testes, where mature sperm are far outnumbered by stem cell precursors and where PASD1 has been spotted. She has yet to look for PASD1 in other stem cells. In cancers, the protein's other known hangout, the reason for its presence are likely to be different. It may be the reason why the clock is not operational in most solid tumors, said Hoganesh, who is not involved in the work. If you're a tumor, and you want to keep dividing and dividing and dividing, maybe you don't want to be confined to dividing at one time of the day. Maybe there's an evolutionary advantage, to tumors at least, to disrupt the clock so they can divide whenever they have sufficient resources, rather than being nudged and nuanced to divide at a particular time of day. Parch's group found that interfering with PASD1's production in two cancer cell lines made their oscillation stronger and more regular. That suggests that future work should look to see whether knocking PASD1 down might also rein in the cancer cell's out-of-control reproduction. Ultimately, the research should illuminate something more fundamental. Understanding how PASD1 interferes with clock function lets us know how the clock is working, Parch said. She and her team are also realizing that, just as the clock affects far more processes than were at first evident, PASD1 may be doing something more than just interfering with clock in BMAL1. But that work will come with time. Second, The Thermodynamics Theory of Ecology, by Veronique Greenwood. The Western Ghats in India rise like a wall between the Arabian Sea and the heart of the subcontinent to the east. The 1,000-mile-long chain of coastal mountains is dense with lush rainforest and grasslands, and each year clouds-bearing monsoon rain blow in from the southwest and break against the mountain's flanks, unloading water that helps make them hospitable to numerous spectacular and endangered species. The Western Ghats are one of the most biodiverse places on the planet. 
they were also the first testing ground of an unusual new theory in ecology that applies insights from physics to the study of the environment. John Hart, a professor of ecology at the University of California, Berkeley, has a wry, wizened face and green eyes that light up when he describes his latest work. He has developed what he calls the maximum entropy, or max-end theory, of ecology, which may offer a solution to a long-standing problem in ecology. How to calculate the total number of species in an ecosystem, as well as other important numbers based on extremely limited information, which is all that ecologists, no matter how many years they spend in the field, ever have. The Gats convinced him that what he thought was possible from back-of-the-envelope calculations could work in the real world. In early 2015, Hart and his colleagues published the results of a study that estimates the number of insect and tree species living in a tropical forest in Panama. The paper suggests how Max Entz could give species estimates in the Amazon, a swath of more than 2 million square miles of land that is notoriously difficult to survey. If the Maxent theory of ecology can give good estimates in a wide variety of scenarios, it could help answer the many questions that revolve around how species are spread across the landscape, such as how many would be lost if a forest were cleared, how to design wildlife preserves that keep species intact, or how many rarely seen species might be hiding in a given area. Perhaps more importantly, the theory hints at a unified way of thinking about ecology, as a system that can be described with just a few variables, with all the complexity of life built on top. Hart has an impressive track record as an ecologist, but before he entered the field, he was trained as a theoretical physicist. In his first faculty job nearly 50 years ago, he taught thermodynamics at Yale University. That's when I first really became enamored of the foundations of thermodynamics and statistical physics, when I realized the power of the ideas that those theories are based on, he said. In particular, he was fascinated by the idea that you could look at, say, a container of hydrogen and infer microvalues, like the velocities of the molecules from macrovalues like temperature and volume. But he soon left to become an ecologist, studying the effect of acid rain on salamanders. Over 25 years ago, he began a landmark experiment at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, gradually heating up a subalpine meadow using electric heat lamps to simulate the climate of 2050 in order to discover what it will do to the soil and organisms found there. Thirty papers and nine doctoral theses have come out of the experiment, which is still running. It's been a major preoccupation of mine for a quarter of a century, he said. About 15 years ago, however, he grew interested in macroecology, which deals with the search for large-scale patterns in ecosystems. Ecologists study the connections between species and their environment, traditionally through detailed observations of the natural world. They might penetrate far into a rainforest, learning the calls of birds one by one until they identify one they've never heard before. They might, as Hart does, monitor a single meadow for decades, becoming deeply versed in the details of each creature's existence. Many are also interested in high-level abstract questions such as how birds first began to flock. But the field is rooted in a kind of natural history. Macroecology deals with patterns that might be universal across ecosystems. 
When the field arose in the 1970s, ecologists tried to model the environment as a well-oiled machine that, given enough time, would settle into certain patterns. Yet when it became clear how much messier the real world is than those models, the field went quiet. We were trying to answer bigger questions than our data could support, said William Coonan, a professor of ecology at the University of Leeds in the UK, who watched the field evolve as an undergraduate in the 1970s. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, macroecology rose again, driven by the need to understand the effects of mass deforestation, climate change, and other large-scale changes in the environment. We're in a situation where there are big, global-scale trends in species distributions, in climates, in fertilization of the planet. We're doing big things to the world, said Kunin, who now does macroecology work. And policymakers want from us answers of what that will do to biodiversity. Vanessa Weinberger, a doctoral student at the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile, who was interned with Hart, adds, What these people started to do was to try to come up with laws of ecology. In Hart's first foray into this area, working from a paper by Kunin, he asked whether species abundance could be structured like a fractal, whether the abundance would remain the same no matter what scale was used. He published a number of predictions that he tested with data from the real world. The results were unequivocal. Nature is not fractal. It was wrong, he said. Hart went back to thinking about thermodynamics until he learned about a procedure called maximizing information entropy that was developed in the mid-20th century by information theorists who had been inspired by thermodynamics. Using this tool, he could start with a macro quality, the number of species counted by field ecologists in a 50-hectare plot of forest, and predict relatively micro qualities such as how species would be distributed across much smaller subplots. After completing that work, he had a pivotal conversation with his brother. He said, You're scaling down. Can you run it backwards? I bet you'll run into trouble. It took me an afternoon, Hart recalls, and I figured out how to run it backwards. Hart had found a way to estimate species richness at much larger scales than he could measure. Once I realized you could do it, I realized there's no reason to stop at 50 hectares. You can go up, 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 he said. And in the same moment, he thought of the western ghats. He had played with data on tree species in those mountains for the fractal theory. The data was unique because ecologists already knew approximately how many tree species there are, around 1,000, but all previous attempts to scale up to the total number from plot data had underestimated the true count by 400 to 500. With Max Ent, Hart got a result of 1,070. In 2009, he published a paper reporting those results. Places like the Ghats hammer home how complex ecosystems can be. They host a dizzying array of organisms. Dragonflies, tigers, beetles, chameleons, 15-foot-long cobras, rare lion-tailed macaques, and the largest population of Asian elephants in the world. Current methods of quantifying such biodiversity are hit or miss, however, because no one yet understands how much overlap there is between what can be measured in a small survey plot and what else might be out there. Most estimates are lower than reality, researchers think. The power of the Maxent approach to ecology is that it doesn't try to deal with the details of these species. It doesn't take into account, for instance, how fast an elephant moves or whether macaques are territorial. 
Instead, it uses ideas from information theory to calculate the likeliest scenarios that could have given rise to fragmented data. For example, imagine you're shown a bag and told that it contains both red and blue marbles. Your task is to draw a few marbles out of the bag and, based on this limited information, estimate what fraction of marbles in the bag are red. Researchers call this the probability distribution of marbles. Clearly, the more marbles you draw, the better your estimate will be. But in the context of ecology, where your bag might be the Amazon, and the marbles insects, you'll only ever be able to pick out a tiny fraction of the total. Max-Ent is a statistical procedure that lets researchers estimate the most likely probability distribution of marbles in an ecosystem-sized bag. Steve Presse, a biophysicist at Indiana University, Purdue, University, Indianapolis, who wrote a recent review that describes the technique's history, explains that Max-Ent is a way to make sure that conclusions drawn from small amounts of information are logically consistent. The point is that, if I have limited data, then in principle, there's a whole bunch of probability distributions that could be consistent with that data, Presse said. How do I select the best one? the optimal probability distribution given my problem. Maxent is a way to do that. Maxent is based on principles of simplicity and consistency, but it has additional assumptions baked into it, starting with the fact that researchers must choose just a few variables to feed into the procedure. In 2008, when Hart first considered the idea, he decided to try it out using the size of an area, the number of species there, the number of individuals, and the total metabolic rate of all those organisms. He didn't pick these characteristics at random. He had an inkling, from reading work on metabolic theory, that these had promised for describing biological systems. In some cases, they do very well. The simplification of a complex ecosystem into just a handful of variables has fueled criticisms of Max Ent because it assumes that those numbers, and whatever processes generate them, are the only things shaping the environment. In essence, it generates predictions of biodiversity without taking into account how that diversity arises. It implies that the details many ecologists focus on might not matter if you want to understand the larger patterns of an ecosystem. Hart said he usually gets two responses. You've opened up a whole new theory and... You're an idiot. Because we all know that mechanism matters in ecology. It's a difficulty many people have with models coming out of macroecology, including one of the first and best known, proposed by Stephen Hubble, an ecologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. Hubble's neutral theory shows individuals living dying, and replacing each other, eventually generating an outcome that, as with Max Ent, can look a lot like reality. Even though Hart, Hubble, and others present their work as null models, which show what would happen in the absence of any other important processes, their success makes some ecologists uncomfortable. Max Ent breaks everything that we ever thought about communities and species and ecology, Weinberger said. If you go to a community, you're going to find a billion parameters. Ecologists are going to say, you have to take care of the wind. You have to take care of the water. And what if the lion has a headache? They're going to try to measure everything. And that's the cool thing about John Hart. He is saying, let's keep it simple. And just with four parameters, at a mini or a macro scale, you can figure out how to describe these patterns. 
With the GATS, Hart was able to scale up from survey plots of a quarter of a hectare to the range's full area of 60,000 square kilometers. In his latest, still unpublished work, he and colleagues used survey data from a dozen 0.04 hectare plots in the San Lorenzo Protected Area Forest in Panama, published in Science in 2012, to generate an estimate of anthropod species on the level of the whole forest, about 6,000 hectares. Hart's new work also uses limited survey data to calculate the total number of anthropod species in the Amazon. The authors of the science paper used several other extrapolation methods to generate their own numbers in Panama, which came out significantly lower than Hart's. That discrepancy is interesting, said Wojtek Novotny, an entomologist at the Biology Center of the Academy of Sciences of the Czech Republic, and one of the authors of the science paper. We don't know whether Max Entz is an improvement or not, he said. The only way to know for sure is to gather more data. But I see it as a very useful addition to the general exploration of extrapolation methods. Because of the assumptions that restrict it, Max Entz doesn't always work. For example, it breaks down in ecosystems that are undergoing rapid change. Kunin suggests that this failure exposes one of the theory's weaknesses as a predictive tool. The whole world is changing, and places that are stable aren't so easy to find anymore. To understand why this failure happens, and to come up with a fix, Hart and his collaborators have taken censuses of insect species across the Hawaiian archipelago, from the freshest islands, just recently risen out of the ocean and still being colonized by life for the first time, to the oldest. He has also obtained data from ecologists surveying the area around Cape Town, South Africa, a location that includes a mix of disturbed and undisturbed plots. With this information, Hart hopes to take the next step toward understanding when Max Ent works and when it doesn't. The theory's breakdown may even be a useful marker of whether an ecosystem is disturbed. Its value, Hart wrote in 2008, derives in part from the nature of its failures. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.